Hola, ¿es tu hijo el que se atreve a treparse al árbol más alto? El que siempre se arriesga a intentar cosas nuevas. Entonces, Capitanes del Futuro es para ti. Un programa gratuito de liderazgo para jóvenes hispanos patrocinado por la MLS y PNG. Inscríbelo ya en capitanesdelfuturo.org y haz de tu hijo un capitán. Recuerda, estamos hablando de nuestros hijos, del futuro de América. My guest today on the enemies list is Ben Terrace. Ben is the author of a tremendous and fun new book called The Big Break, The Gamblers, Party Animals, and True Believers Trying to Win in Washington While America Loses Its Mind. Ben is a great observer of D.C. politics and culture because, folks, what you don't see uh, on, on the news every day about Washington is it's not just a town of the Mitch McConnells or the Nancy Pelosi's or the Donald Trump's or the Joe Biden's. It's a town with tens of thousands of staffers and folks who work in lobbying firms and think tanks and everything else. And Ben has given us a good sort of anthropological examination into that world that I think you will really enjoy. There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. So, Ben, welcome to the Enemies List. Thanks so much for having me on. So, tell us about the big break. Tell us about uh, about the moment right now in D.C. of of, of the political culture that's happening as we speak, because it is a lot different than it's been in the past. Yeah. So, when I set out to write this book, um, it was right after Joe Biden had had become president. And there was this idea that existed in some places anyway, that things were going to go back to normal, right? <laughs> Finally, we can go back to normal. <laughs> I looked around and I was like, there's no way this is going to be normal. I mean, after four years of what we've gone through uh, as a country, but as a city in Washington, especially like normal just didn't seem possible. And so I wanted to see what the new normal looked like. And to do that, I really, you know, spent a lot of time figuring out who were both the most interesting, but also kind of important in their own way, characters that maybe exist below the headlines. But if you got to know mm -hmm. them, you'd be like, oh, wow, these are these are fascinating stories. You know, like, thank you for smoking, right? You read the book, thank you for smoking. Oh, it's, yes, Christopher these Buckley. These are the most interesting characters you could imagine in Washington. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is sort of like a real version of that in a way, where these are the people who have interesting stories and once you've spent time with them, you're like, oh, this is how Washington works. So you you profile a bunch of different characters in this in in this book. Uh, tell us of some of the stories of the people you looked at and and how they how they sort of uh, you know shape this culture of today uh, in D.C. So the book opens with a poker night at the bachelor pad style apartment 
of a Democratic operative named Sean McElwee. Which, by and, the way, this is a great scene setter for the book. I, when, <laughs> I, when I read that, I was like, oh, God, this is so on. <laughs> yeah, well, he's a great character in mm-hmm. the book, in my humble opinion. Uh, he is this guy who, in 2018, he started an organization called Data for Progress. And he was kind of this hot shot Democratic pollster type who always had his finger in the wind and was very good at knowing where the base of the Democratic Party was, where the money in Democratic politics was, where Mm -hmm. you could become influential in Democratic politics. And at first, that sort of meant being a Bernie bro resistance kind of guy who would host socialist happy hours in Brooklyn. In (laughs) Biden's White House, in Biden's Washington, he became kind of a Biden pragmatist type, you know, and he would host these poker nights and bring together a group of mid-level rising type Democratic operatives. And they would all talk politics and spending time with him felt to me like a really good way to capture kind of an entire part of the city, the experience of being in Washington in a way. He, when I talked, okay, let me back up and say for this book, I talked to his ex girlfriend, among other things. Mm-hmm. And she told me that Sean was, she, she knew him better than anyone. They dated for seven years. And she told me she still could never tell whether he was more motivated by the desire to be powerful and influential or the desire to do good in the world. And I felt like getting to know someone like that is a really important part of Washington. A lot mm-hmm. of people come here and they want to do good. A lot of people come here and they want to be influential. Sometimes you come wanting one and you end up doing the other. What this place does to people and what kind of people are drawn here is interesting to me. And so getting to know him was a really good way to get to know that kind of struggle between idealism and cynicism that's always going on in Washington, more so now, I think, than ever before. You know, I think the that you know, and and I, I'm I I've been out of D.C. since 1994. So I went to school there. I worked in the first Bush administration. Uh, spent a lot of time in D.C. And there, there's always this like hustle game culture of eager young aides. And and back then, the arc for a lot of guys my generation, my age, was you wanted to go into the administration, and then you wanted to go out and either become a lobbyist or go to a think tank, and essentially just become a part of this big policy machine, this big sort of political machine. And very few people wanted to be famous. They Very few people wanted to be out there in the public space. That seems like it's changed a lot now where all of these people are so much more media conscious and social media conscious than any previous generation in DC. And it, it feels like some of the motivations have shifted to more like attention and fame than it was than the traditional model of, of power and influence. Yeah. I mean, definitely people are building their brand all the time here, right? That's what we talk about. <laughs> right. and, and I think, look, if you want to give people the benefit of the doubt, you can say that's partly because that's the way that politics works now. And Don, that's mm-hmm. one of the things that Donald Trump changed or at least exacerbated, sure. right? I mean, there, there's been, you know, James Carvels or whatever before, and people have made names for themselves. But now, after you see how Donald Trump was able to get himself elected president, and you see all the people that surrounded him were able to become big deals in, in Republican politics, partially by being kind of main characters in, in stories, or at least, you know, having main character energy. Right. Um, so if you want to give people the benefit of the doubt, you say, well, people are just using the new tactics that, that get things done. But I also think a lot of people are now drawn here because they see it as a place to become 
famous, to, to become influential, to become important. And, you know, Sean, just to stay on him before we could talk about it, there's a lot of characters in this book, tons, but Sean is a really interesting right. one. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, he, he was here and always trying to get quoted, always trying to kind of get his work seen by as many people as possible. And it worked for him. He, he, he had his polls tweeted out by the White House. He was working for the John Fetterman campaign. Right. I mean, these are these are the kind of the biggest things that can happen to you as, an, as a rising star Democratic operative. Um, and he had this kind of Trumpiness about him in a way. He thought all press was good press. Mm-hmm. He would do his scandalous stuff out in the open for people to see. And it wasn't a scandal because it was part of who he was, right? And, and, and the big example I have in the book of that is at these poker nights, some of the biggest bets he was making had nothing to do with the cards. It had to do with politics. He was making bets on elections with his friends. He was placing bets online, including on races that he had clients in. Right. I mean, so, so, I mean, this was, there, there's always been an undercurrent and, and I know people who in, in my business who have often made very good money on predict it. And on, on, on essentially sort of the, the sort of thing that if you were in a professional sport, you'd be paid or you'd be uh, Pete Rose out of it. Yeah. Um, if you did it that way. But he certainly has. Um, I mean, the, the gambling on this thing, it's there is a little bit of like that, that young guy hotness and ego you want to have that that drives a lot of energy that makes it possible to work, you know, 100 hour weeks. But on the other hand, it does seem like he in particular had a had a bit more. Uh, like edge to him. He gets sort of banged up for betting on some of these things. Where's he now? What's his story now? Uh, I mean, cause I, cause he's was tied in with Sam Bankman freed at mm-hmm. some level. And that I think for a while was this, I, I can tell you inside the liberal donor world, there was this eagerness to get next to Sam Bankman freed two years ago. And now they're like, who, what? Yeah. <laughs> the show was sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, folks, there are always things people need to get off their chests. We carry around a lot of stress in this world. Some of it's big, some of it's small, but all of it, if we keep it bottled up, can affect our health in a negative way. Therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down, to learn how to deal with those stresses. I know so many people who've benefited so much from therapy. They find a safe place where they can talk about the challenges in their life, where they can learn positive coping skills, they can learn how to set boundaries, and they can learn how to assess what's happening in their world in a way that makes them that better version of themselves. Therapy isn't just for people who've been through trauma or suffered a loss. It's for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's convenient flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Wilson today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Wilson. Well, yeah, I mean, when I first met up with Sean, he was definitely a man on the rise, right? He this His Data for Progress organization that he started was in the middle of things. He was getting big clients. He was, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he was teamed up in a way or, or helping out um, with people involved with Sam Bankman fried, you know, his brother, Gabe Bankman fried would show up right. overnights and he was, Sean was working for Gabe's organization uh, as a consultant on the side. So he's making good money and he was cozying up to the right people. It seemed if you could have a connection to Sam Bankman fried as a political operative, in theory, you could have somebody pay your bills, for a millennium, right? Like it's just, mm-hmm. 
more money than anybody could imagine without that many people close to him. And so <laughs> Sean really, I think, felt like the world was his oyster. Um, but by the end of the year, he had a pretty dramatic downfall. Right. Um, you know, not to get too into it, because uh, I do hope people buy the book and read it and, and, and see exactly. <laughs> what um, but, you know, his staff turns on him. The gambling becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. Sam Bankman Freed becomes a problem. Um, you know, the last mention of him I, I saw in a Google alert, because I still have those for some reason, even though the book is done, is that he and his girlfriend are hosting vegan nights in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> and it may, it may be the next great, great big opportunity for him for all you I You never know. But it's not the same thing as uh, taking a meeting in the White House and getting your polls tweeted out by, you know, Ron Klain. Or right. So for generations, when people, when young people move to Washington to work for a member of Congress or a senator or in an administration, there was a certain commonality about them. They were, uh, the, they were the young sort of Tracy Flicks, and they were the, the you know guys like me, we, you know, young Republican guys or younger Democratic guys and women who came to D.C. and yeah, they were on different sides of the ideological divide, but they all spoke the same language. They all sort of had a shared culture. And on the weekend, you'd go play softball or you'd go, you know, go to parties and whatever. And it wasn't, it wasn't this really divided area. Tell us about when the Trump people arrived, because that was a really different culture. When they, when they came to DC in 2017, how was that different than, than the normal sort of ebb and flow of, of, of these immigrations into DC? That's a good question. I mean, so the thing about, when Trump became president was he didn't, he didn't really have access to all of the traditional people that he could have had come work for him. There was a lot of folks who wouldn't want to do it. At least at first, a lot of these people ended up probably deciding, ah, you know, working at a white house, what are you going to (laughs) do? Um, but also he probably, and his people probably didn't want to hire a lot of people. They are, they were a grudge holding group, right? And so if you were anti-Trump at one point, you're probably not going to get to go work for him. And so it, it really just had a different feel. Um, the people who came to Washington very much felt like they were hostile to the place. Uh, mm-hmm. they, the place felt hostile towards them. Um, you know, famously, Donald Trump never went to any restaurant other than his own while he was right. in Washington. And it kind of, you know, I feel like that trickled down. This this idea that everybody could kind of hang out and they realized, oh, we're going to fight in public and then have beers afterwards. And it's all part of a game. It didn't really feel that way. Um, and, you know, maybe it was always weird that people would pretend to fight one way and then go hang out afterwards and laugh about it. But mm-hmm. it, it, it felt pretty dark um, in, in Washington. It was almost like, yeah, like, like a hostile land for the people who were here, I'm sure, that came to work for Trump, but also to the people who had always been here that were now all of a sudden dealing with an influx of people who really clearly didn't really have respect for the place. It just seemed like a really different culture, not just the weirdos like the Stephen Millers and the Steve Bannons, but it, even the people that were sort of normies in a little, in, in, in some recognizable ways from prior administrations, it just seemed like that, that Trump culture cut people into this like very narrow lane in DC. Well, you know how they say that, that sometimes people like start to resemble their dogs or whatever. (laughs) I feel like there's a little of that in in Washington too, where you might come in as a establishment Republican type, but then you kind of start to resemble the MAGA influence. I mean, Matt Schlapp is a very good character in the book. Mm-hmm. Like that, I mean, he like you know worked in the Bush White House and was kind of an establishment 
white haired lobbyist type who could have uh, oh, yeah. dinner with Democrats. And he was a regular on PBS. And then he became kind of the most loyal Trump supporter there is. And his tone completely reflects that now. Mm-hmm. You know, you profile an old friend of mine in the book who I've worked with over the years off and on as one of the most weird and sort of problematic cases of like not not of still sort of trying to keep a foot in that in that world and that's Frank Luntz. Yeah. And I've known Frank since uh holy hell 96, maybe 95. I don't it's been it's been a long time, right? And uh, tell us a little bit about Frank's arc in this story and how I mean it 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 was honestly reading it was sad. A lot of people been in the, fell into that never Trump or post Trump Republican world. Like me, I'm I'm actually pretty happy. You know, I feel like I feel liberated from it. But it's it's the 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 chapter on Frank or the parts on Frank just seem kind of like you feel like this weight on this guy. Yeah, I mean, people often forget that like Washington is actually filled with humans and they have human stories. You might not right. like them and you might hate all the things that they've done and you might think they've been bad for humanity but they're still going to be humans. Mm -hmm. I I think that Frank kind of gives off that vibe of like a deeply tortured human in some ways. Uh, In the book, I meet up with him at his old house in Virginia that he's hardly spending any time in anymore. Right, right. Used to be this place. He's. I I went to parties there back in the day. Yeah, Big parties at this place, all-star games, baseball all-star games. He'd get everyone to come from Harry Reid to, you know, Republican staffers who work for John Boehner, whoever. It was right. an establishment house and people would come and they'd do that thing where they would all mingle and swap stories about the Brooks Brothers riot or whatever else. And when I got there, it was like almost a house in disrepair. He was moving his stuff out. He had he decorated this place kind of like an overgrown child in a oh, way. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. filled his kitchen cabinets with baseball cards and but the cigar store Indian is is, is right. still in my mind, right? He's got he had the uh, Bob, the Bob's big boy, the original mm-hmm, Bob mm-hmm. Big boy statue that, oh, yeah. you know, cherub child hoisting a, a hamburger over his head. And he had that by the swimming pool. But instead of looking like a polished, you know, artifact, it had green slime that was growing on it. He clearly had not been at this house in a long time. Uh, vines were growing up the side and he was there to move out. And right. it felt like kind of a perfect little metaphor in a way because he was a guy who said, I used to come here all the time and people would visit me here all the time. And now nobody wants to come out here. And he said it had to do with the distance between there and Washington, but like the house hadn't moved. He was the person who had moved or or the party that he used to be a part of had moved and he no longer really fit in anymore. And his story, you know, it's sad, but he, but he kind of built it himself in a way. He worked for people that helped lead the way to, to, to Trump, he recognizes that he feels bad about it. He tried to undo some of the work that he had done. He just doesn't really have a home now um, in, in the Republican Party. He's done some work for Biden during COVID. It was just like you do the kinds of things that that the Republicans that are still in power today they look at someone like Frank and they say no thanks. But there was and is one major exception, which is that Frank Luntz is best friends with. Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> and it's a strange thing. So as much as Frank wants to be gone, he's still forever connected to the place. He does still have a penthouse in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. that famously Kevin McCarthy yep. was his roommate in for a while. And when I asked him if they were still roommates, Frank would not answer that. Um, and 
he's going to be forever connected to this place, to these people, because this is the life that he's built. I can tell you this. I, I once in a while hear Kevin roll out with a with a line or a statement, and I'm like, Frank wrote that. Come on, come on, Kevin. Yeah, <laughs> you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> what Frank? One, one of the kind of most telling details that Frank told me while I was reporting this book was, you know, he told me that that Donald Trump almost killed him. He said that he had a yeah. smoke because mm-hmm. of Donald Trump. That he almost died. His, his words were like, Donald Trump made my head explode. And it like wasn't really that far off. It wasn't really that much of an exaggeration. Right. He had a stroke. He almost died. He blames it on the stress and not taking his medication. And he blamed those on the fact that Donald Trump was president and he couldn't handle it. And he said that he's afraid of injecting himself with needles and uh, he has medication that requires that. And sometimes okay. he'll have yeah. Kevin McCarthy be the person that injects him. So... Donald Trump almost killed him. Kevin McCarthy's helping keep him alive. It's like he's just very much connected to Washington, even if he doesn't want to be. Right. As a listener to this podcast, you know democracy is in danger in America and beyond. This titanic challenge requires a powerful response. And that's why Resolute Square was founded. The Enemies List is part of the Resolute Square family. We're a pro-democracy network. The Enemies List is just one part of Resolute Square's pro-democracy content and coverage. Our members get particularly exciting benefits. Exclusive live roundtable discussions with me, Reed Galen, Stuart Stevens, and Joe Trippi. In those discussions, you can ask us questions directly, as if you are in the room at a campaign strategy session. In these sessions, we'll give folks answers on how to fight back against the crazy, how to push back against the MAGA media, and how to communicate effectively in the battle for our democracy. We're building a new arsenal for democracy, and we could use your support. Head over to ResoluteSquare.com slash enemies to let the world know where you stand. Weddings, college graduations, your stepmom placing third in a dog grooming competition. We've all got reasons to gift this summer, so give them something they'll love. Drinks. And get them all from Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop local stores and compare prices on beer, wine, spirits, then get them delivered in time for your summer celebrations. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Ding dong, it's Drizzly. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. Tell us a little bit about how you see the game of lobbying today, because it used to be a much different game. It used to be the classic former staffer who could raise money and had a relationship. Now, it's still that's, still that's true in part, I think, but you describe it a little differently now and how it's sort of a changing the, the lobbyist world, they're sort of changing a little bit. Sure. I mean, it definitely changed a lot when Trump was president. I mean, mm. having any kind of entree to Donald Trump, if he had a cell phone number, you could basically become a millionaire. Uh, <laughs> um, one guy who I spent some time with in the book told me that um, basically, like, if you called the White House uh, switchboard and just asked to be connected to somebody, they'd connect you because there weren't that many people calling, you know, not that many people even knew to use the switchboard. And it became, you know, a place where almost anybody could be at least some kind of successful. Right. A lot of people burned out quickly because like having Donald Trump's cell phone number might be helpful, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're a great lobbyist. Uh, <laughs> so one of right. the strange things is- as or, that he'll keep, or, or that he'll keep any promise he makes right. to you. There's that too. Although having a promise kept isn't always important for lobbying. Sometimes it's just Indeed. Oh, waste time with this person and now you've done your job. Sometimes you don't want to solve the problem as a right. lobbyist. Yeah, the longer you can have billable hours, the uh-huh. better. But one of the things that's, that's interesting too is in some ways, lobbying is 
reverting back to what it's always been. Just now new people are doing it. There, somebody I, I talked to in, in the book basically came in as a Trump guy and was here to shake the place up. And then after a little while, he's like, well, I guess Trump might not be president forever. I'll hire some Democrats and I'll hire some, you know, you, you do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so as much as Donald Trump has changed parts of Washington, it's not like he changed the fundamentals of it. There, being a, a successful lobby shop that can exist for decades still requires a lot of the same skills. Sure. And you're hiring people who worked for Schumer and you're hiring people who worked for, uh, you know, Trump and they're working in the same place and they're just kind of pretending that things are normal in the lobby shop. And that's how you can kind of be most successful. The, that, the, the degree of sort of the, the, the higher and higher walls between both parties and Congress, at least. And a, a lobbyist friend of mine told me this and he's, he's been a practitioner for, he's, he's older than me. So he's, he's probably in his mid sixties and he's been doing this since the early nineties. He said, you know, it is tougher and tougher every year to find ways to move stuff through, you know, the, the, the small ball stuff you can occasionally do, but the big kills are much harder to get anymore. You're not going to get like the big energy bills or the big transportation bills. Generally, are they, are they, are they ratcheting down into like narrower ideological silos to try to, you know, work at the micro level rather than the macro level? How's that? What's the, what's, cause it used to be like, if you were, if you became a successful lobbyist, you were, you know, that was beach house money, as they said. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the, the work ends up getting done um, in big bills that often have little to do with what you're, what sure. you're it's about, right? It's just like, well, this has to pass. And so we got, we're able to get our thing in there. And so I think there's a couple of opportunities every year where there's some sort of hostage negotiation happening over must just like just like now <laughs> like now where i think lobbyists probably can make a killing because it's like well if we can get one of our people will spend a lot of money for a very small chance of something happening and mm-hmm. if that small thing happens then it's billions of dollars for the company right sure. so why not spend a couple million dollars on a lobbyist to try to make a multi-billion dollar thing happen right why so why not hire every single damn uh, I, I like Facebook. I mean, that for a while, I think it still is. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm wrong. But for a while, Facebook was like the full employment program for DC lobbyists. Yeah, I'm sure there's still plenty of them. Uh, we talked a little bit in the beginning about like the 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 things driving the people that you profiled. Talk to us about that. How it's changed now. How what it, what it feels like now versus you know the traditional motivation because it's it seems to me like a lot of people coming to DC are weirdly, their signifiers are more ideological, but their actual behaviors are more like explicitly about themselves and about their branding and their power and their position in that town. Yeah. I mean, one one of the things that feels different now is, I mean, this is like to to use an online term, a Twitter term. People are are always saying that someone is, is saying the quiet part out loud. Right. Right. And so it sort of used to be, yeah, you know, maybe you always did want to be rich. You always did want to be powerful. Like there are plenty of grifting, plenty of grifters or uh, people who are willing to change their beliefs, quote unquote beliefs, if it was if it was useful. But now I feel like people are almost shameless about it. There's kind of a shamelessness in Washington that mm-hmm. uh, there was always some shamelessness, but it's just because of the Trump era been exacerbated, right? It's it's right now as we're talking about the debt ceiling. You know, you'll hear somebody say, we are holding the debt ceiling hostage. Okay, well, maybe Gates, they always were yeah. Gates, right. Maybe they always were holding it hostage. But you kind of had to pretend like you weren't 
so he didn't look like you were an actual terrorist. And <laughs> now that it's okay to be saying stuff like that, it means it's okay to act like that. And so I think people are getting away with more than they ever were able to get away with. Yeah, I mean, you have that generation now that are, you know, the Gates, Green, Gosar, Bobert, you know, that, that whole loon bucket caucus. You always had a couple of eccentrics here and there, but now it's like, I would say probably 50% of the Republican caucus is performative and probably yeah, 30% of the Democratic caucus is, is just performative. They're just there. Yeah, they, they, they're playing the role they play on TV until they figure out what their next gig is. But these performers matter in a way that they never did. I mean, I've oh, always, yeah. oh, for sure. I've always been interested in, in kind of sideshow characters, right? Like I'm in yeah. Washington. I'm not a particularly like political person. I don't, I didn't spend all my time like caring about polls in college. Right. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't ever interested in the horse race stuff. I was right, always right. interested in like interesting people. And so when I came to Washington to be a reporter, a lot of the people I wrote about were kind of weirdos and I would do that. And they were almost like, okay, we have the front page and then we have Ben stuff will be later because you know, they're, they're fun stories, but they're, they're sideshow characters. But now those sideshow characters are on the main stage. Right. And yeah, that is a big difference. I mean, yeah. Louis Gomer used to go and give these speeches to it, every week in the house to nobody saying oh, yeah. things that nobody cared about. And it was funny. Um, sure. And now yeah. People are saying the same exact things as him, but they might be the former president of the United States. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, and you also had, I mean, I used to always be amused. I don't know if this may be before your time now. This guy out of Ohio, Jim Trafficant. Remember Jim Trafficant? I mean, Bullet, I don't remember him. Personally. Right. Bullet-headed guy. He would give these fiery, crazy speeches. All I mean, went to prison later, whatever it was. Um, but there was like one or two Jim Trafficants, and now there are dozens of that kind of person. So it, it fascinates me. You know, you write something interesting. It's like DC is in this weird moment. It's like post-Trump and maybe pre-Trump. What is the feeling in the air right now in that town? Because weirdly in DC, everyone sort of expected, oh, Biden's a purely transitional figure. Maybe it's one and done. Maybe something else happens. And now it looks like, you know, not looks like he is going to run for a second term. What do people, what's the sort of like betting line? What's the feel on the, in the, in the climate there right now on, on where we're going to be in, in a year and a half? I mean, it's very much kind of calm before the storm uh, feeling in, in Washington where we, as a city have like a certain amount of time until something big is going to happen and everybody is sort of figuring out what that means for them. And so you could be like an umbrella salesman before a hurricane, like trying to (laughs) sell as many umbrellas as possible. So you have like infinite money and then you're gone. Right. You could be an insurance salesman for the same reason, or you could be building new structures to try to prevent democracy from getting, you know, toppled over. And so there's kind of a lot of scurrying around, but also a lot of like just being worried about, well, are we doing the right things? Cause you don't know, you don't know where the hurricane's going to hit. You don't know how big it's going to hit. You don't know exactly when it's going to hit or like who's going to be around to, to tell you, I mean, weather men get stuff wrong all the time, but people in Washington get stuff wrong even more. And so yeah. it sort of has this feel of like, everyone's trying to do as much as they can, but nobody knows exactly what to do. I, I do find, you mentioned that like some MAGA people have gone into the lobbying world. One thing that fascinates me is a lot of them, for all they hated the swamp and hated Washington, a certain a, a good number of them stuck around and have started to build out this very, 
I think meaningful and dangerous, in my opinion, conservative infrastructure, or, or I'm not, excuse me, post-conservative MAGA infrastructure in D.C. Tell us a little bit about the kingmaker figures in D.C. right now that you for, that are left over and and maybe trying to be kingmakers again if he comes back. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't kingmakers is, is interesting. I'm not sure I know who the kingmakers are exactly, but what you're talking about there is exactly right. Like, it was a bunch of people who pretended that they hated the swamp, or maybe they did because and, and never spent enough time here. But right. then as soon as they have the opportunity to build a new swamp in a way they do. And so all these things that were once, you know, kind of out there are now getting this professional sheen um, in, in Washington where they have a think tank, you know, at one point Ben Carson had a think tank and uh, Hogan Gidley, who I talked to at, at a <laughs> party who has always, you know, prided himself as this outsider type, right. you know, operative who was working for Huckabee and Santorum, when I saw him last, he was a spokesman for a think tank in Washington that was, you know, the, the America first something, you know, whatever, election. Right. Election America policies. first policies or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And so it's just the same thing you've always seen in Washington, but Trumpified. And mm-hmm. if you are worried about Donald Trump's influence on American politics, like that's the place to look is all the things that were once no, no, all the things that were once unacceptable quote unquote, unacceptable in Washington are now fully acceptable. Right. Right. Um, so one last question before we let you go, what's the weirdest character you profiled in this book? What's the strangest, most striking character you profiled in this book? Yeah. I mean, look, I don't know about which character is, is weirdest or not, but I can tell you one of the weirder stories in the book. One of the right. most things that you would never read in another book about Washington is my guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's the story of a young staffer named Jamarcus Purley. He worked for Dianne Feinstein, um, a young black guy from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, brilliant, went to Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, Wow. Um, basically worked for Feinstein for for five years. And after getting fired for a number of things, takes a bunch of mushrooms, breaks into her office, smokes a joint at her desk, films himself in a protest (laughs) video. And, you know, to me, what was so interesting about that story is, yes, that is a shocking thing to do. But the what led to it and what happens after it, I feel like it was a very actual powerful about what it's like to be in Washington, to try to make change, to be part of this culture of young people who do all the work and have none of the voice. And at a certain point, you just, you know, the book is called The Big Break, and this is a small break in the among the big breaks that happen and when he has this break this is what happens and what happened next was just fascinating to me and it's stories like that that don't get told about washington that actually tell a lot about how washington works that i think make my book a a really different uh washington book than you've ever seen before well i tremendously enjoyed it ben and i want to thank you for coming on the enemies list today the book is the big break the gamblers party animals and true believers trying to win in washington while america loses its mind ben terrace thank you again my friend i look forward to talking to you again soon thanks so much for having me this week's rant is a broad rant a rant concerning a lot of people But I will tell you this, they're mostly people in the, what I call gentry conservative media. So this week, during a speech at the Air Force Academy, Joe Biden spoke for two hours, shook hands, introduced himself to people, had a, by all accounts, great speech, 
And as he was coming back up on a stage, he tripped on a sandbag. Now, look, I'm 60 years old. I can trip on anything. I could trip on anything when I was 20 years old, for that matter. But Biden tripped. And immediately, the conservative media went into the usual tailspin of their own bullshit, screaming and screeching, oh, my God, Joe Biden's senescent. Joe Biden's dead. We can't possibly elect a man this unhealthy and this dead. And, and it's the same thing from the same people who for months were saying, oh, Joe Biden's a senile, doddering old fool. He doesn't know where he's at. He's drooling in his oatmeal. The same Joe Biden who pants them, who took them to school and slapped them uh, over the debt ceiling deal. Um, the same Joe Biden that they think is is incompetent and, and non-compostmentous in every way, um, just raked them over the coals. Let me tell you something, folks. Anybody can fall down at that age. Joe Biden's an old guy. But guess what? You put Joe Biden out in a field and you ask him to run 50 yards, he can do it. You put Donald Trump out in a field and at the 10-yard line, he's going to sit down and ask for, for a McNugget. This is not a comparison. Donald Trump is ill. He's fat. He's old as well. Joe Biden is at least a healthy old guy. And the people that were all wringing their hands and doing the, I don't mean this in a partisan way. I don't mean this in a hostile way. But Joe, get the fuck out of here. You're all on the enemies list. Get your shit together. You know what's going on. Thanks again for listening to The Enemies List. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times. Please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.